1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce. I am an assistant professor at SUNY Geneseo in rhetoric and communication. And today I am so excited to be joined by not only an incredibly intelligent colleague, uh, a talented writer, but also a friend. Dr. Michael Mario Albrecht, who is currently an assistant professor of communication at Eckerd College, but soon to be transitioning to an independent scholar, maybe something that we'll talk a little bit more about today. But the more immediate issue is uh, Dr. Albrecht's wonderful book, Masculinity in Contemporary Quality Television, published by Rutledge in 2015. This book explores everything from um, the mangina scene in Californication to bromances in the league, to the Obama crisis of masculinity, uh, post-bailout masculine crisis, and hipster masculinity, the Schlemiel, and a variety of television shows that you're sure to recognize from the 08 to 2012 period, including Girls, Louie, Hung, Breaking Bad, and Mad Men. And I'm excited to have Dr. Eckert here. I think this is just a wonderful book. It it really shows the complexity of this thing that we call hegemonic masculinity. And um, for anyone who's been even remotely keeping up with the news lately, there's been this big thing about the Gillette razor ads uh, and taking on contemporary masculinity and how it fights back against hegemonic masculinity. And, and that discourse is really interesting because it does... Talk about the the hegemonic or the the most frequent, the dominant form of masculinity as being this one size fits all thing, and then of course looking at these other types of masculinities as its competitors. And what this book really demonstrates through a really close analysis of all these television shows is a not only that contemporary quality television is still a, fr- a site fruitful for analysis, but also that masculinity is really this very complicated, ambiguous, ambivalent set of tropes and rhetorical performances and anxieties that while none of these particular characters, as Dr. Albrecht says in the book, are good models for what we might call an alternative masculinity sort of moving forward that's like, you know, less rapey and less violent, they do sort of point to the way in which masculinity sort of always is its own downfall. And that provides fruitful a uh, fruitful ground for rhetorical scholars, critical scholars, and post-feminist studies or feminist studies, depending on where you fall on that time spectrum. So again, I'm very excited to interview this wonderful book. And uh, Mike, are you there? Great. Okay. And we're going to call you Mike. You said that was okay. And do you, do you use uh, he, yes, his pronouns? he, his
0: pronouns and Mike is great.
1: Great. And, great. and I use she pronouns, although the listeners know that, but I'll let you know too. All right. Well, um, gosh, this is a great book. And- I just wanted to start with, you know, let's start with the obvious question that I think everyone's going to have. So the last chapter of this book takes up Louis C.K.'s performance of masculinity in the show Louis. And obviously, the last couple of years have, have sort of shown Louis C.K.'s hand in terms of masculinity and misogyny. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you see that, what you think that chapter was doing and how you see it in relation to what's happened in history sense?
0: Yeah um I um so I always thought Louis was doing a really interesting thing with masculinity that I thought he um uh, one of the there's an episode that I specifically look at in the book where he um sort of so he performs uh, a a it's about a, a rape scene so it's sort of like a reverse rape scene where he acts as if he is being raped where the, the person he's on a date in pushes his his head into her crotch as if he is, and he doesn't want to. And so he is sort of the way in which um, sort of that is sort of seen as the norm in the dating scene. And so what was always fascinating to me was sort of Louis had this very sharp awareness of the role of um, sort of power and the role men had. And so I always thought like, oh, here's a guy who gets it. Um, and, uh, I guess in the last year or two, we kind of learned that, oh, he was a guy who didn't get it or maybe he got it and didn't give a shit. I don't know. Um, so that's what I I had mentioned to you earlier that, that I I didn't think that chapter had aged well because I sort of looked at him as like, oh, here's a model of, uh, of like a guy who's really like, like working through these things and really thinking very deeply about like what it is to be, to be a man in the 21st century. Cause I think that we are at this point um, that if you want to be a, um, a woke for lack of a better word, man in the 21st century, it's not just a matter of like saying like, Oh, I um, I want to be less rapey to use your term, but like you have to really, really put in a lot of work and think about it and think about your um, like, like what it means and think about like, Oh, so when you're dating going on a date with someone like what, how do you talk about sex? How do you think about these the, the little things that might be um, moments of of control? And I thought he like he sort of got it. Um, I don't know. And so, like, I was sort of I was very disappointed when I'm like, oh, like either I don't know which is worse that he didn't get it or that he did get it and didn't care. Um, I don't know. But You said you thought that maybe he, he, he you, you might not agree with that.
1: Yeah, I I don't think you're giving your reading of Louis enough credit. I know, Grin, I don't want to give Louis C.K. any credit, but I think – so first, I'm going to read from page 92 where you you sort of lay out the thesis of the Louis chapter because I think the language is important here. Also, uh, you use the word rapacious in the book instead of rapey, so maybe (laughs) I'll use that so I sound more distinguished. All right. um, so you say on page 92 that Louis creates a tension between multiple versions of masculinity. However, it refuses to endorse one as dominant or preferable. As such, the series queers traditional masculinity and heterosexual romance by demonstrating the futility and the absurdity of the binary structures upon which the logic logic of those discourses rests. And so your reading of that scene is, is really important because it kind of, demonstrates the way in which the show and 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 him as like both himself but also the actor of the show take up these kind of Larry David like positions um, but with respect to masculinity more than say like social niceties Uh, and then you say that despite his best efforts. So despite Louis CK's best efforts to queer hegemonic masculinity, Louis cannot ultimately escape the weight of traditional gender norms in his struggle to displace them. So for me, what I found compelling about this, um, is that the, the whole entire book is set in the context of the Obama administration, right? So roughly 2008 to 2014, and you've got a couple things happening there. One, you have this really interesting, um, I think you call him a fet, right? Obama's kind of non-traditional masculine performances and how that's kind of both energized, but also brought into crisis, new modes of masculine being in America. And then also the economic crisis that happens in 08. And a lot of these shows are almost, I think, um, I think Hung especially is, and Breaking Bad are both kind of in direct response to the way that when you can't be a breadwinner for your family anymore, you kind of fail to be a man. So what 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 makes sense to me is that if your reading of Louis as kind of the best attempt to queer masculinity, even though obviously not a perfect attempt, comes out of the emergence of this particular historical time period, it would make sense that when you get a new era of masculine performance, i.e. the Trump administration – That what was once a queering of masculinity and sort of a refusal to accept the binary structure and kind of its awkward slippage, you would get kind of the reassertion of masculine dominance. And so I think you actually, I think it actually has proven you right that he turned out to fail because the show was in a particular historical context. And now you would need to read his performance from a different historical vantage. Um,
0: uh that's a generous reading of me. Thanks. Um, I would like to give a, a, one little shout out though to that term queer heterosexuality. Um, it's the term comes from Annette. Sch, uh, I'm going to get her name wrong. Schlitzer. My German's terrible. Um, and television studies scholars uh, Leslie Haywood and Mary Lisa Johnson. They did a great reading. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Six Feet Under. Um, it's actually just started favorite.
1: it after I read this book. It's very interesting.
0: Oh my God! And that character of Nate was sort of like a great performance of that guy who really wants to get it and never quite does um, and like maybe it isn't maybe, maybe you're ultimately not able to get it like I, you know and me who's trying always trying to be that uh, and, and maybe it all, ultimately it is because um, the patriarchy is so all encompassing like m- maybe no one ever can like the point is always like you have to keep trying it's Sisyphusian um, well,
1: yeah and, and, one, and one argument you can make about Louis C.K. is that he did try yeah, and, or at least, or at least he performed, and that's where <clears> it gets tricky. It's like, is he the performance or is he him? But yeah. he did try, and maybe just the the way in which we just have no outside of certain masculine paradoxes. Mm. Maybe that's what ultimately led to kind of him just not adopting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, we'll never. That, that's the thing with rhetoric, but it's it's a really interesting question. And again, i I don't think it. I don't think it damns the chapter. I think it just makes the chapter like historically constrained. And now you have a different set of constraints. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to see like what happens, like is, if we, if masculinity was, we did have this sort of moment of, um, masculinity in crisis. Um, um, as I pointed out like masculinity has been in crisis, like every, every 20 years or so there's always that discourse. um, but um, then, sort of, the the reaction is like, all right, let's see if we can get the most boorish guy next to be president, and like, just see how terrible we can get. And like, yeah, we have we have President Pussy Grabber now.
1: I know. Oh God. Um. Although it <clears throat> it does raise an interesting question. We're going to go way a af- far afield, but then we'll come back to the book. But you know this thing with Aziz Ansari and and the Me Too movement. Have you heard of? Okay. So, I'm I read a bunch of case studies following that, and you know. That's a situation where he he invited a woman over. She came over. They were awkwardly kind of not making out, but like hanging out in the living room. She kind of didn't really want to be there. She was like moving away from him. He would move closer. He was kind of being a little bit kissy and trying to sort of make it happen. And she was not feeling it. She didn't speak up. He didn't recognize what was happening. And then eventually she kind of was like, I just want to go home. And he calls her a cab. And. I always thought it was interesting that we that we lump that into hegemonic toxic masculinity, right, and me too, because the other reading of that is that he he's occupying kind of this liminal space between hegemonic masculinity that's toxic and rapacious and everything, and and this something other, which is this desire to not do do those things right which is to say like to, to wait for consent and to make sure she's comfortable and I always thought it was weird that we immediately binarized just like with Louis C.K. I mean he he definitely binarized himself recently by just kind of going all in for it but it, I think part of it is too is as a culture we're very reluctant to recognize those ambiguous moments and so I think um, it's also brave of you to in this book you really try I mean you really try to give these guys a generous read not because of who they are or because you want to rescue some kind of masculine origin but because you're really trying to see where there's potential for change in some of their behaviors i mean even adam from girls who i just found so loathsome and i couldn't couldn't even i couldn't watch the show for a bunch of reasons but i went back and i rewatched it while i was reading this book and i just was like you know You're right. The eyes that you have for this particular show are so insightful and are drawing ideas. And of course, you just came out with a piece that I'm excited to read on this particular um, same case study with Adam and the hipster masculinity. So just because Louis C.K. just wound up being kind of the jerk all along, I don't think it undermines the quality of the project, which is to try to find alternative masculinities, if that's even the word that we want anymore, from these texts that come out of this very unique historical time period.
0: Uh, well, Adam was sort of the opposite, where I kept reading all of these think pieces where people kept asking the question of, like, what should we think of Adam? And I had the same thing as you. I was like, well, this guy's an asshole.
1: Yeah, your, con- like, your contextual analysis, by the way, is phenomenal. You must have done a ton of research on when, what people were writing about these shows in the blogosphere.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like – that's just sort of what I do, though. Like, that's how I spend my mornings as I, I read think pieces. Yeah.
1: Well, it um, shows. I mean, it definitely paid off in the book.
0: Um, well, thanks. But, like, yeah, I just kept thinking of, like, well, why, why, why there? And I think in my head it's like, I think it's because Adam's hot.
1: Is he, though? And, like, I people... do not think that guy's hot. When they casted him for Kylo Ren in, uh, mm. I was like, really, this guy?
0: But well, I, but, but well, that I, character
1: I... is that similar kind of Anakin Skywalker, I'm a giant maybe, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to assert myself. So it kind of made sense in that way, but I just did not. He's not hot like Hayden Christensen was hot.
0: No. I mean, I—, I... Again, like and it, maybe I didn't even think he was hot, but like people do think he's hot.
1: Yeah, I don't get that. Um, I think that's that, I think that's character transfer. That's like people who thought Chris Farley was hot. I think that's just character transfer. But anyway, let's assume yeah. people did think he was hot because I do. agree yeah, with so that.
0: People kept wanting kept thinking like, well, Hannity keeps you to give this guy a chance. I'm like, like in that one scene where he, um, um, he he definitely raped the woman. People saying like, was it a rape? And I'm like, well, it definitely was a rape. Like that was didn't wasn't even kind of a binary. But yet people so but why are people talking about this? And I think there is this thing where like if if we if we start calling things rape, then a whole lot of people have to like go back into their past and either have to say like, oh, something I did was um I was a rapist or something I did, something that happened to me was a rape. And that's really hard on either end of it to like go back to and like re reevaluate your past.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's also one of the problems of of a surface depth binary, right? That once characters have depth, when they do something crappy, it suddenly becomes very I mean that's kind of what's interesting about all these characters, you know, Walt Walt White from Breaking Bad and Don Draper from Mad Men and Adam from Girls is that they are from a surface perspective really like problematic. Um but then from a depth perspective you can suddenly make a lot of exceptions and apologies and, oh, well, maybe they did it for this reason and, oh, maybe they didn't. So it's, that's the other problem, is that we assume that because a character has depth or because a, a, a public figure has depth, that, that that somehow apologizes, that that's an apology for them doing what they did because we have another binary we have trouble working across, I think, is that surface depth binary.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. And depth, is, depth and context are something that, like, are as a culture we have a really hard time with. Um, I think in in some ways, like the with with rape, at least when I talk to my students about it, um, my students like to say, "Well, there's a lot of gray area." And I think it's easier for me when I'm teaching them to say, "Like, sure. What if we just call the the gray area? Uh, let's not do that. Let's call that red. Stop." It's um, just
1: part of the black area. Yes. <laughs> it's just um,
0: yeah. Then then like then that makes it easier for you to have to deal with that. But like I but like I don't know if I really believe that deep down. That's just like my way of training them not to rape. Right?
1: Have you like, seen Amy Schumer's Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, Don't Rape Skit?
0: Uh yes, yes.
1: That it's to me very It's funny, man, when she's on, she's on. But yeah, but, but, but right. But the, the, because the paradox is the way that we say, do not do this very specific action that looks like this, this, and this, but then the whole culture. And I think these texts are really good examples are either giving people this, this masculinity anxiety or crisis, or these pressures to act in this certain way, like football and this kind of machismo take, take what's yours. It's yours for the taking kind of thing. And I was thinking, I was watching Remember the Titans the other night. And I remember thinking, you know, this is a very racially woke movie. I mean, it's trying to do a lot of things for the advancement of interracial relationships. And and the race binary gets very displaced. But what you see is this incredibly strangely homophobic, like Disney version of homophobia show up combined with this incredibly like passe attitude toward excessive violence. And I remember thinking like, see, this is the problem. We've taught that real men integrate. But we've also taught that real men are still violent, homophobic, you like militant kind of assholes. Oh shoot! I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. I've never tried, so let's not do that.
0: Oh, I've already um, swore a couple times. I think.
1: Have you? Well, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, to be honest, we're going to quote like Don Draper and girls, so it's like how are you going to avoid it? But we'll see. Uh, so good way to test the boundaries. So I mean, yeah, it just points to all these paradoxes. And so then when when students say there's a gray area, on the one hand, it's like no, there's no gray area of behavior. If you don't have ongoing consent and it's pretty clear that someone is just not comfortable being there, or even if you're just have a little bit of an inkling, you back off. I think the gray area for them comes in the fact that like we have all these mixed messages from society. So for me, it's about tearing apart, which gray area are you talking about? Cause the one we can talk about, the other one is just you making an excuse for why you don't have to do things you don't want to do.
0: And you, you know, as someone who, who, who like me is, is not, doesn't like binaries in general, Right. Consent is one of those things where, like, all right, like, I'm going to take off my post-structuralist hat and say, like, no, this is this is a binary. Consent is is mandatory. And like, I know what consent looks like. Even though deep down, I know that it's a construct.
1: Well, and even if. Yeah, right. Even if I mean, this is Derrida, right? We're getting deep here. But even if consent is not a binary, I'm going to act as if it's a binary because that's the right political move. Is that kind of what you say what you're saying? Yeah, and I want to teach my right, well, I want to teach my students.
0: Even though usually my move with my students is always to complexify. I don't know if complexify is sure. a word. Um, complicate is a word. Let's run with it. Right, but in this particular <laughs> moment, my I it's it's not. It's like no, this one I'm going to simplify.
1: Yeah. So, and I think so. I, I think that's what's interesting is that the more we presume that because we give depth and complexity, I, and I think about this a lot. Like sometimes I I'll see a meme or something on the internet that like. Donald Trump was someone's baby once too or something. Uh. And I get what they're trying to do there. They're trying to say, like, you need to have sympathy and humility for this person because they're a human like everyone else and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, I can, I'm fine with that. It does not, it does not make my brain uncomfortable to say that I don't agree with policies and behaviors, and then also say that he probably has a very deep character and has a lot of stuff going on. I, I think the problem is that we assume that one of these has to rule the day. Yeah, But it's perfectly capable for me, for example, for me to think of Louis C.K. as someone who is complex and occupies all of these strange liminal positions with respect to masculinity and had this show where he really tried to push back and gives to charity and la, 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 right? All day long. But also he did a bad thing. And I I don't need Mm -hmm. one of those to be true in order for my brain to process that. Yes. But I think we act in pop culture a lot as if you got to choose one direction or the other. And I think that was the problem with Adam is that it was hard to like him as a character and then also say that that was a rape scene. But I think it both of those things are true. He's a likable character. That was rape. I don't have to dislike you to put you in jail for doing something illegal.
0: <laughs> that makes a lot of sense.
1: So, yeah, I mean, it's a great reading. I, I, I thought I had – there was so much to think about with this book. And I'll tell the, the listener um, – we are just going to scratch the surface of this book. It is absolutely worth a one on one read and I'm excited to announce that the Kindle uh version and the paperback version both just dropped down to around thirty dollars, so they are a really great price now from amazon, and as always um you can get a copy for your library so that students and other faculty and members of the staff can read the book, or you can get uh, request a copy from your popular local library so that members of your community can read the book. If you'd rather do that than purchase a personal copy, that's a great way to give back. All right, so let's zoom out from this conversation about um, a number of things that started with Louis C.K. Why don't you tell a little bit about the historical context? Because even though we've touched on it, uh, the chapter that you do on Obama's sort of effemininity and it combining with the bailout and how that drives your reading of a lot of these chapters is really important because obviously – one of the things that's great about rhetorical criticism and the, is that it's always historically bound. And I think you do a great job of doing a history of the present that's really hard to do. So I'd love for the readers or the listeners to learn more about that.
0: Um, yeah. So I guess what got me thinking about this was um, I guess there was two shows um, in particular that got me thinking about this. So, so they came out about the same time and one was Breaking Bad and one was Hung. Um, they both came out, started, the Breaking Bad starts in twenty. 20- 2008. I think Hung might have started in 2009, <clears throat> but there, both of these were shows where someone um, uh, has to start. They can't make ends meet in the regular economy, and they instead they have to start. Um, they have to make. So, in Breaking Bad, um, he has to become a drug dealer, and in Hung, he becomes a prostitute. Um, and both of these are right at the at the moment of. The financial b- breakdown that happened in two thousand and eight, um, and so they're they're speaking to this sort of cultural anxiety we have about like oh nobody can get a job, and that that hits especially hard to men, especially white um, baby boomer um, men who are like getting real, are supposed to be getting really close to being retired, and instead are having to like take up a new job. Um, and that was that was a, a discourse that we heard all the time in the news was like, all right, these guys guys are getting laid off, and they're in their their fifties, and they you know they have to start learning a new job, um, and like they didn't know what to do, and they felt anxiety, and they felt hey, wait, real
1: quick. That would have been a great title for this book: "Guys Getting Laid," and then in parentheses, "Off."
0: Um, yes, yes, that I, would have been a great. I, okay,
1: I'm just saying that would have been a great subtitle for the book. That
0: that, that, is, that is pretty. All good. Right, keep going. Um, I, had, I had lots of titles that were um, w- that the, the editor didn't like. Um, I wanted to call it 21st Century Schizoid Man as an homage to the... Ooh,
1: or the Schlemiel. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of, of good them, stuff but in this, this book. Was, this was
0: the one the editor yeah. went with. Um, sometimes you don't get a choice. And in my first book, I didn't know that, I, that the, the writer actually has some power over the editor. Um, but live and learn. Um, but yeah, so like there was this, there was this, I, I was like, Oh, well, this is really interesting. There's two shows that are better about this. And the more I started to like, see what was going on in television, like I started to see a lot of this sort of anxiety about like, Oh, the way that men used to be. And like, Oh, Mad Men was going on at the same time. It actually started a little bit earlier. Um, but like, Oh, like people, like, why do people like have this reverence for, um, Don Draper? Um, like, our, why do we like him? It's weird that we like him. Like, i i I actually did like him I'm sort of like what, what what is it I like about him? He's a womanizer he's um he's a chauvinist um maybe it's just because i want to drink and smoke um I, I get that part i guess um but like what what is it about that time that like what is it evoking and like I was sort of like saying like oh well maybe we're it's evoking this time when um there was there was a certainty about masculinity where men had the jobs and they had a place their place in society was seen as solid, but in two thousand and eight like there was there was no jobs and that that was also the moment when Obama gets <coughs> excuse me Obama gets elected, and he was he was a president that was very much unlike a man's man. He wasn't George Bush, who was out on the ranch clearing brush right he was wearing tan suits and he was eating arugula right he was putting fancy mustard on his, wasn't a Dijon mustard, some sort of mustard that wasn't regular mustard on his hot dog, right? He was, yeah, you know, he wore, he, he wasn't Ronald Reagan. He wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't going to be in any cowboy movies like Reagan was. He was this other sort of guy. He was, um, he was Ivy league, but he was not the kind of Ivy league like George Bush was, who was like at frat parties. He was a constitutional law scholar and his wife was fashionable and like They were hanging out in Martha's Vineyard and, you know, and like this was a different version of masculinity. He didn't look like he was ever going to clear brush. And it's like all of these things were sort of going on at the same time. And I can sort of, I was sort of reading that. I could see that going on in these sort of same, these texts, these these televised texts that were going on. And so like the more I started to watch these television shows, the more I started reading the reviews of them and sort of these paratexts, sort of like... You know that's that's sort of how the book project came about, and I just you know started reading those things through and then I started reading all this literature on masculinity and it turns out that there's been all of there's been all of these moments when this crisis has happened so at the turn of the twentieth century, there were people were all worried about men not um that's when the Boy Scouts started because they thought everyone was going to be a mama's boy um and then in the fifties people were worried about this because uh it was mama's boys again too then um there's been all of these kinds of moments through history when masculinity sort of emerged as we need to be a man's man. Um, And it it showed its face in popular culture and like this sort of perfect storm of the Wall Street collapse mixed with this new president who was not, not traditionally hegemonic masculinity, I think brought about this moment in culture. And I think we're still sort of seeing the implications of this we still don't have full employment now we have this boorishly masculine guy um we're still seeing this me too movement going on um the 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 kavanaugh hearings um i'm sure that there's a, those sparked a thousand dissertations that day um on like the his performance of masculinity um so i i don't know masculinity is this this fascinating thing i was I actually just sent out a piece about um, uh, um the true detective did you watch the first season of True Detective?
1: It was fabulous
0: it is um um this was actually a piece that got accepted for uh, uh edited a collection, but then the, the that all felt the, the whole collection yeah. fell apart, so I just reworked it and sent it back out. but like man, there's some weird masculinity stuff going on in that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Especially like in relationship to the occult. Well, that's cool. I'll be excited to read that. I never finished the second season, but, um, the first season was really good.
0: Yes. And the third season just ended, but I haven't, I haven't had any time for, I haven't had any brain capacity for any serious TV. Like I've been watching, I just watched, uh, 13 reasons why, which is not that serious.
1: That's a really, so here's my problem with that show. Um, I don't buy that. That the character that she needs to be to drive the plot of the show is the character. Like, I don't. So that that girl who's who's organizing all of this, like the mastermind behind all of this shenanigans, just have a hard time. I don't have a hard time imagining that she would commit suicide because I think one of the points that I think the show could be making is that you kind of never know. Mm -hmm. But. The idea that she would stand back and just abide all of that trauma kind of quietly and then commit suicide because she's lonely and alienated doesn't vibe with the character that she is.
0: Yeah. It's also that's so, of-
1: And I don't know if that's because I'm being like mental health normative here because I'm trying to think like could this just be a really fascinating case of we just never know who who, who is having mental health issues. But I just don't know rhetorically it just seems to have way too many gaps for me.
0: Oh yeah, there's lots of problems with that show. Not the least of which is like it's the 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 show is about this woman but the protagonist is a dude. Right? So
1: Yeah, that's that's the other thing I have a problem with and again it's that it's that depth surface thing.
0: It's it's a man it's, it's a manic pixie dream girl. Right, it's
1: that's entire right, yeah, and that's weird because he's like rescuing her after her. Yes, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, and it's got
0: all the tropes, like so. It has oh, the the magic Negro does, trope, right. but he said he's a magic Puerto right. Rican gay guy. Yeah. Um So it's just all tropes, yeah, which is right. why I watched it just because it was not very. Um, I didn't have to think real hard about it.
1: Have you watched Speechless with Minnie Driver about the? They have the son who is nonverbal and in a wheelchair.
0: No. That
1: sounds pretty- so it's very well done. And they have a magic Negro on that show as well, but they they're sort of, it's weird. Cause like, it's like hipster racism, right? Like, Oh, we know we've only got one black guy. And he also happens to be this magical figure who makes sure that the white kid is happy. Mm-hmm. But they do. I will say they do a really good job between him and the, and the, and the, the main character in the wheelchair. I've, I've really enjoyed it, but I, I kind of feel guilty too, because I didn't with 13 reasons why I just didn't like it, but I like this show. And I also know that tr- it's very tropey and <laughs> I don't know. I'll be interested to see what you think of it. Okay. So let's go back to the book. Um, I hope, I hope the listeners at home really love pop culture because we're making a lot of references today. and I really hope oh, that yeah. It. Okay. All right so let's um well yeah, so we got this we got this masculinity crisis it's driving all of these chapters, and I think the next place log- uh, logically to go that we haven't talked a lot about is mad men because to me um in terms of just the overall uh, obvious relationship to masculinity, less so the bailout, but certainly I think kind of in a way because this was a time where just like money was there for the taking, and you've got this birth of like the um like the the original hipsters, right? These men with the suits on wall street. Uh, so uh, the Thomas Frank book, the birth of cool. I think that's, you read that, right? Oh Yeah. 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 I think that's in the book. And so just this idea that there's just like the world is out there for the taking and ad exacts. And this just like beautiful time where men were men and the sheep were afraid and all that stuff. As my father would say, who was also a terrible human being and in the crisis of masculinity, my entire life. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the relationship you see between uh, Mad Men and these two moments of the bailout issue and the masculinity crisis of
0: 08 Mad Men was actually the last show I didn't watch it when it was coming on because I was in the throes of my dissertation writing um, and it was actually the last show I watched Like I knew enough about because it was so big in popular culture like I knew it was about um, some mutual friends of ours I don't know if I need to name drop them but they actually um had their um, engagement party or their wedding party was a uh, mad men themed um
1: yeah actually let's, let's get some shout outs i'll give a shout out to emily uh, emily winderman and attila halsby uh attila, yes. should on, attila should be on the show soon for his new book and then oh nice also, is it out no but it's it's imminent so i'm waiting yeah, i knew i knew
0: what was coming out I just didn't yeah, know
1: and uh you know paul johnson because i actually the only one episode of mad men i ever watched i watched at paul johnson's house oh nice yeah yeah so i'll, I'll shout out i don't mind i'm not above it Okay, cool.
0: But yeah, so like, so I knew like I, it was Mad Men was the show at the time, and like, so I knew it had to be a chapter, and like, it was in my proposal, and like, but it was the it was literally the last thing I watched, and I sort of binged it. Um, so I was I was sort of fascinated. I I I didn't know I was going to like it as much as I did because it was like one of those things like oh everybody likes this show, uh, I'm not going to like it because like I don't I'm, I'm not usually That's a period piece kind reaction. of guy.
1: You and I are the same person. The minute somebody <laughs> likes something, I'm like, uh, poo-poo. I will yeah. not be watching that.
0: But yeah, like period pieces aren't usually my thing. And I'm like, I don't like, care about like, you know, like wardrobes and like clothes aren't going to do it for me. But I, I, I really did quite, quite like it. Um, but I thought it was going to, like Don Draper is a very dark character. Oh, I like that. Um but, yeah, I, I don't know if you can tie Mad Men quite as much into the financial crisis, in part because it starts earlier. But you definitely can tie it into sort of the idea of masculinity being in crisis. And, like, why, why is it that people would just ask you the question? Like, why would you want to, like, celebrate this? Why would you want to in the same reason? So um, it, it, also in those same years, that's when the Leo's version of The Great Gatsby came out. Like, why would you want to have a Great Gatsby party? Um, the Don Draper's character and, and, um, Jay Gatsby, I think are very, um, similar. I make that point in the book and I'm, I'm by no means the only person that's made that. Um, it's pretty obvious, um, spoiler, they both make up their, they both make up their past, um, and they're living the American dream that way. Um, but like, I don't think in either case, like, I don't think we're supposed to like them. I, like we're we're supposed to look at them as like being these sort of devious people who like make up their past and can't find happiness. Like at the end of the day, like they're I think both Gatsby and um um Draper aren't aren't happy in their lives. Like no matter how much they on the surface they're big parties and dr- drink drinking and women. Like at the end of the day, they're pretty sad people. Like um, right? I don't know. But people still have the parties. Like, is it just the surface? Maybe this is the surface depth. (coughs) (coughs) Like on the surface, Don Draper's house, Don Draper's life looks good, right? He's got a wife at home making him food. And then he's got his side pieces all over that he's sleeping with. And then he's got, you know, booze and he's got, you know, all the stuff, but like, you know, he's, he's not happy. He's, it's, it's a show about his depression. Uh,
1: well, I think, too, there's this way in which, and I think this is often common of historical periods, is that and you make, I mean, I think you kind of get to this with, with the nostalgia in the, because um, a nostalgia is kind of your driving concept for this particular reading. But that there's this aesthetic of what we'll call like the, the height of like 1960s advertising culture that has just been so seared into the brains of people in a very flat surface way like a very just a very like sheer aesthetic that even when the show comes out and tries to reinvest you in this other vision this depth vision of what it must have been like at that time in these characters in some ways i think confirmation bias just has you picking up what matches the aesthetic in the first place. And that's why you wind up with like mad men engagement parties. Cause of course, if you were having a real mad men engagement party, people, everyone would be cheating on you and you would be doomed to a miserable marriage. And you'd probably be marrying someone you don't want to marry in the first place. So I do agree with you. There's a very bizarre paradox of identification that I've always found very peculiar about people and their love of that show. I feel the same way about game of Thrones.
0: Oh yeah. I didn't, I don't watch that one. Um,
1: I don't either too much rape. I can't, I'm out. No, I,
0: I don't like dragons and shit. Oh, and stuff. <laughs> um but uh, like I just barely watched the middle Earth one, um but yeah, n- nostalgia is something like man I keep I have this I, I have a book about nostalgia, I keep wanting to write, um but like I always like in, in my uh, master thesis is kind of about it because I always like, why do I feel nostalgic about the '60s? Like I wasn't there, um but I, I feel it like when I see that moon landing, I'm like, yeah, moon landing. And I'm like, but I wasn't there.
1: Well, see, I don't feel nostalgia for the '60s at all, but I totally feel nostalgia for the '80s. Even though technically I grew up in them, <laughs> I didn't really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we I've got um uh, Kristen Hurl coming on to this show in a couple of weeks to talk about the bad '60s. Oh,
0: I love that! I, I wrote a review of that book for a Southern Communication Journal.
1: Yeah, and I was gonna say, and I think so that maybe we'll keep this. Maybe I'll keep this question on the table for her to chat about that. Oh yeah,
0: but yes, yeah, her book is just fabulous. And You. Your listeners should totally go and buy that book before they buy mine cuz hers is way better than mine is. Um, <laughs> you're terrible. No, no,
1: speaking but of crisis of crisis of masculinity, you demand your book sales, damn it.
0: Yeah, I demand my book sales, but that book is that book is like I just have, I have it's been a long long time since it's been an academic book that I just like enjoyed front to back and like my I don't know you, should, you, you should, I don't know if you looked at my review but like it's I don't know, it's just glowing from start to finish.
1: I haven't, but I'll check it out before I interview her. You should,
0: yeah. It's in, it's in Southern. Um, but, yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the, the 60s is um, – I'm um, – here, I'll, I'll plug, plug my next project. I'm working on a proposal right now for a book about uh, comparing 1968 and 2018, and, like, the 60s is just such this behemoth of a thing in our minds that, like, we can't – we have to, like – we have to reckon with it. Like, even if we – even today, we're still having this fight about between the baby boomers and the millennials – that's still, you know, we still have three baby boomers running for president in, 20, in 2020, at least. Who knows if Al Gore is going to throw his hat in the ring. Uh, I don't want to say that out loud, but yes. I, it's hope a, it,
1: I hope it's just a total, like a total carnival. Oh, yeah. It's what we just, deserve. Like
0: just people like we forget, like Mike Dukakis,
1: come on in. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe Ross Perot will give it one last shot. Yes.
0: Um, But, but, but yeah, like we're still like, so so Mad Men is this moment, like this moment, like right before the sixties. So if the sixties are this moment when everything, everything changed, right. That's the moment when masculinity got challenged, right. When men started growing their hair long and started questioning authority and like everything happened. Like Mad Men is that moment before, all that happened and everything went wrong that we, that's why I think people like, like looking at, at Don Draper. Cause by the end of the show, like um, again, spoiler, it ends with him um, on a um, he, he's, he's meditating and he like, he's embraced the seventies and like some people must be like, man, that must suck. Like he's everything about Don Draper <clears throat> changes when he's meditating. Although, a cynical read of the end is like he's just faking it. He's just using that as another ad campaign. Um, he's just figured out that he can make money off of the new age movement of the 70s. This,
1: this, the one thing this show did really well was kind of leave you with this sense of where, where does he as an individual begin and the act of advertising end? Mm. And I, I don't remember. Did you mention the wheel, the really famous wheel scene in your book?
0: Yes, the, the, the nostalgia. Like that's, yeah. Um, that's from the first season where he, he sort of pitches nostalgia. And, like, so it's this very meta moment of the, the carousel where yeah, he, he he's talks Yeah, he's trying
1: to sell, uh, the, like, the old-school Kodak uh, slideshows slide that you used to click the button and the wheel would turn and you'd put your slides in this giant carousel wheel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so instead of talking about the, 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 the machinery, he talks about, like, he's selling memories. Right. And so, but like the show is so self-reflective. It's was like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're selling this right to you. And like, yeah, they know. Um, Matthew Weiner knows what he's doing. Weiner. I don't know if it's Wiener or Weiner.
1: Yeah. Well.
0: Um, I loved his, his latest show, even though it got hand, the Romanovs.
1: I heard that was good, but it didn't make it I awesome.
0: I loved it. Huh. It was an anthology and I love, I love me some um, Russian stuff. Oh, do you? Yes, good good times.
1: This is, this is like the most Russia has ever been mentioned on my on this podcast. I bet. Oh, oh no, sorry, it, it was German. It was German. You mentioned earlier.
0: Um, oh yeah, but there's a there's a great nostalgia book by this Russian because um, Russia, public memory in Russia and Germany both is really interesting. You know, I mean, uh, just because they remember very differently there because their past is so weird. Um, or not weird, but just like so so differently constructed that, than ours. That
1: would be an interesting question. I'm sure someone's written this book, but sort of like, because obviously the, the way in which memory works has to be culturally constrained. So mm-hmm. we're talking a lot in this Mad Men chapter about how memory works and how, and how Mad Men wants you to think that memory works. But I wonder, yeah, it'd be interesting to know how the similar types of actions are done in other countries where I bet memory is kind of the logic of memory is done very differently.
0: Yeah, there's, there is a book, I, I can't think of it the top of my head, um, but it's, it's something nostalgia, like creating nostalgia, but it's done by this Russian woman. Um, but yes, memory works very differently in Russia. Um, but this is, it's all, of our, all of this memory that we're thinking is a very American thing, right? And Don Draper is the ultimate America, because America is where you can reimagine yourself, right? He He is completely a person who reimagined himself through the war, through... <clears throat> through the depression through through advertising like he is <clears throat> again just like Jay Gatsby like he's the American dream um and like masculinity has always been so um tied up in the American dream um think about uh death of a salesman right the American dream masculinity you got the two guys one of them kills himself and the other one's biff I don't remember how it all goes but it's, it's something along those like it might not be biff but it's something <laughs> the like <laughs> the other ones. That's the one who dies. Is the one right? It's the one who kills himself.
1: Oh my god! I've only ever seen the one with um. Oh uh, yeah, it's the son. Is it Biff who plays the son? The dad is uh 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 Dustin Hoffman.
0: Yes. Yes, in one Right? Of okay.
1: Yeah. Right and it's in the yeah in one version and then the sun yeah that's right and right but it and you got to imagine that Mad Men has to be paying homage to this phenomenon of 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 sales because at the same time that it's looking at the height of this it's coming at it from the future which knows that this all fell out from under everybody Oh yeah So there's almost a way in which the fact that Mad Men came back right before the crisis hit for the bailout um, and, the, and the economic downturn, in, it, almost as if it were foreshadowing, because right around the time, like if Mad Men had really started at the time that it really started, you would have hit the economic downturn in the advertising and sales market right around the same time. So it's almost like it's almost pre, it's almost prescient the way it kind of got us re-excited about the, the prospects of like new industry right before all that fell out from under us.
0: Yeah, so it's coming out. Um, so Does it start in 05? I have to go back and look. But like it's coming out right as right as um Steve Jobs is trying to sell us on um the new iPhones and stuff. So you can really you can read read it through that lens. Right, so they know that like the new iPods and the new iPhones are just the next sham and that our our lives aren't going to be any better, they're just going to be um,
1: you know. You're capitalism. terrible. No, it actually premiered <sighs> in 07. So no, you're it was right on the cusp of that cuz it cause heck, 07. it was the end of it was the end of 07 when, when, um, when, Bu- when Bush signed the first for, for the Fannie and Freddie right before, cause it was Obama who signed the actual auto mm-hmm. bailout in, but no, I mean, I think July 19th too. No, you're right on the cusp. I mean, I think you're, I think you're reading of this as part of the bailout is spot okay. on. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 07. I,
0: I, like, I love your generous reading of my book.
1: It, no, it's really good. You, I know you, and I know that you're you're not going to toot your own horn, so I'm going to toot it for you because it deserves to be tooted. All right, so we are coming up at 45 minutes. Um, This has gone really fast. This is a really fun interview. Do you want to say anything else about any of the other chapters in the book or were there other favorite case studies that you, or other favorite um, uh, characters that you studied that you sort of think are really good synecdoches for the book as a whole? Uh,
0: I will put just a little blurb in for like the league and like, I think it's sort of, interestingly i put that with you
1: talked about the league yet
0: huh um just because like I, talk I,
1: about the league yet
0: I, I i put it in for quality television and like my people might not think of that as quality television i might not think of it as quality television but like it's it, it's such a interesting way in which they play with masculinity and they play with this sort of trope of the hyper masculine um and they play with um the, the idea of a having a show that revolves around a fantasy sports league is so just sort of brilliant in the way in which they are able to use the sort of banter and the hyper masculinity that accompanies this. Um, and I just, I, you know, and it's got all of these great a- actors who I think have, have done lots and lots of things now that have been um, so the Duplass brothers, I think have done like, I don't know, they've done 30 shows by now that have all been, looking very introspectively at masculinity and Nick Kroll has done so many different things. Um, if you're not, if you haven't watched, um, big mouth, like big mouth is look as, as a, um, sex positive pro-feminist look at puberty in a way that like, it's just mind blowing. Um,
1: Is it? I, I just thought that show looked kind of creepy. Oh, it it's is, good. It's, I'll take your word for it. It, the, it oh, is. Okay. And it's, it's trying
0: it. to be like, what if we looked at puberty from, again, yeah, a sex-positive, pro-feminist point of view? Um, uh, and, and I think Nick Kroll's a genius. And um, um, just all of the, and so this, The League is, like, on the one hand, like, this show is, like, filthy and offensive. And you can just read it as potty humor. And I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of bros who just read it that way. But, like, I, I really think it's doing something much more complicated than that. Um, so that's sort of why... I put it in there. And also because I was just like binging the show at the time and I'm like, well, I'm binging it. Might as well write about it.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the great works of our time. <laughs> um, if you really think about it, I mean, what is Walden pond, but just binging on nature and writing. Sure. Name, I mean, that's so what, I mean
0: what, Why be in our field? If you can't like write about the things you like, um, you know, or, or write about, you know, um, because the, the, the the, the things that we like are very much a part of this sort of larger politics. Um, and if you can't,
1: <coughs>
0: if you're someone like me who is very invested in a, a larger political project and you, you can't find that in your everyday life, then, you know, you should, you should find something else in your everyday life because um, I don't know. That's, that's sort of my two cents. That's my big takeaway. Do stuff you like, but Do like make sure like. that like the stuff you like is 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 is, is sort of meaningful in like a, a larger political way. Like don't sure. you know, like my students are like, well <clears throat> <clears throat> um, now I can't watch the show and um and, and now I can't watch it without thinking about politics. I'm like, well, that's good, right? Like you should be thinking about this. Oh, I did want to point one thing out. You started this on the new on the new Gillette ad campaign. Um, I'm convinced that the Gillette ads are the new Dove soap in that I'm going to be reading so many student papers about it. Um, I already had like three for my ideological analysis. Yep,
1: paper. I, yep, they all wanted to study it this semester. And I just yeah. – I wrote a list of arguments out. Last year it was uh, Childish Gambino's This Is America.
0: Yes, it was. <laughs> I, I, I said it to the person who does um, – um, uh, plagiarism because they had five and I thought they were working together oh
1: no it was just I mean they weren't
0: but, but I was just like I think they all are because like they, all, they had all had like a very similar kind of crappy analysis of Childish Gambino
1: yeah and in 2016 it was <laughs> Beyonce's Lemonade and then it was the Childish Gambino in 2017 and then the... but
0: the Dove one still comes out like I can oh, see it, it when they raise their hand oh. when we talk about um, yeah. uh Fat acceptance. Oh, that's who you should have on your show, by the way. As you know, um, Zimdars.
1: No, who's that?
0: Um, she does, uh, she just wrote a great book about, um, television and fat studies.
1: Ooh. Okay. I will look that up. And well, you've, usually you're you're ahead of me, usually, uh, to sign off, I say, Hey, do you have any book recommendations? My hunch is you're going to have a lot. So I will add that to my list. Um, and I assume you have
0: Caitlin's on your list, right? Caitlin. Bruce.
1: Bruce. Yes. But I haven't heard back yet. Um, Okay. But so we'll
0: see. Uh, hers just came in the mail yesterday. That's why I'm thinking of it.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. It's tough to get people to answer emails this time of year, which <clears> I'm not surprised by. It. I just think everyone – every which I get. I mean it's it's exhausting she, for me to read the books and then find time for the interview too. So I can she only She just imagine. got back from England. So. Yes. I know. I'm jealous of her life. Okay. Uh, no. I mean, there's a lot of people I might have to tag in this episode. We've we've done quite the quite the inner circle. Um, all right, so we're up at 51 minutes, and I think we have just I, I mean, again, barely scratched the surface of the book. Luckily, scratched the surface of of many other things that were not in the book. So I just once again want to encourage everyone who's listening, if you've enjoyed the conversation, or even if you didn't enjoy the conversation, but you think the book sounds like it might be cool, to check out. Uh, Michael Mario Albrecht's Masculinity in Contemporary Quality Television, available from Ritledge Press, um, p- published in 2015. And again, you can get it from the press itself, or also uh, both the Kindle and the paperback versions are available new on Amazon for around $30, which is an excellent price range for a book like this. We're happy that uh, the price dropped just in time for the interview. And if you're not interested in purchasing a book for yourself, We encourage you to reach out to your university or public libraries and request that they keep a copy of the book on hand. As you can tell, this is tapping into a lot of great popular culture, some really deep, important issues about uh, masculinity and feminism and basically how we're going to live the next 10, 20, 30 years of our lives if, if the way that we have been living it in terms of gender norms hasn't been working. And you really want to make that kind of information publicly available to the best of your ability. The New Books Network really appreciates uh, presses like Rutledge for working with us and making it possible for academics to get their work out there. And so I will um, also make a plug quick because, Mike, I heard that you're transitioning into an independent scholar role, also uh, a.k.a. an alt-academic, and that you're going to be sort of starting your own little, like, uh, I call I call them um, uh, uh, professorpreneurs. <laughs> Uh, nice. Yeah. So you're going to start your own little professorpreneurship. So do you want to maybe uh, tell us a little bit about that? And I'd be happy to um, to let the audience know what you're up to because maybe you can be of help to them.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm starting an editing business. Um, for a long time, I have worked as a freelance editor for working for somebody else. Um, and so I'm starting now. I do um, line editing. I do developmental editing for academic books. Um, I actually just did a YA novel. Um, that's not really my wheelhouse, but it was fun. Um, but yes, um, so I'm, I'm willing to work at any stage of the academic writing process. Um, I've done dissertations, I've done books, I've done articles. So let me know. I, I can get into a conversation with you about what your needs are. Um, my website is michaelmario.com. I was pretty excited that that was available. Um, yes, and check me out. And um, there's a place there we can start a conversation and talk to me about editing. Um, yes. And I would like to thank Lee for having me on our program. Um, it's been lots of fun.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. It ha- it's been awesome. Uh, I have had just the best time with this. I mean, I originally got into the New Books Network because I essentially noticed that the channels in language and media and communications were almost entirely dead. So all of the content that they were getting was crossover from other channels and there was no rhetoric. Uh, so I reached out to um, to, to Marshall Poe, who is a history professor and also kind of an independent scholar and the CEO of new books network. He does it all nonprofit. Uh, it's all with a little bit of sponsorship, sponsorship through university press. And he runs the whole shebang and he was happy enough to bring me on board. And I will tell you, this has been just the best experience. And I hope that people are enjoying the podcast and certainly feel free to send me feedback. Um, I'm, I, my email is, you can find me at Lee Pierce at SUNY Geneseo. If you just Google me, but my email is real easy. It's my last name, Pierce, like Pierce your ear. My first initial L at Geneseo, G-E-N-E-S-E-O E-D-U. All right. Well, Mike, it was awesome. I'm excited to hear more about your uh, forays into all academia. And yes, if anyone's interested, check out michaelmario.com. A link will also be in the show notes. And pick yourself up a copy of Masculinity in Contemporary Quality Television. Or as I've subtitled it, what did I say? Oh, uh, Dudes Getting Laid, parentheses off, close parentheses. Nice. Which is how I'll be referring to it from now on. All right. Okay. Great. Thanks again, Lee. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye-bye.